morning we will be looking at Paul's letter to Titus. The first six verses of chapter 2. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And it is completely authoritative. Titus, chapter 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You this morning that You have brought to us Your Word. Please, O Lord, do not let us take that for granted. The great blessing that we have in Your Word, that it is with us, that it is available, that it is so plentiful. We ask, O Lord, that you would encourage us and equip us through your word, that we would be able by your spirit to obey the commands of your word. We ask this, Lord, in great hope and confidence, for we ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're continuing our journey through the book of Titus, where Paul is giving instructions to Titus, who is the church planter slash uh, administrator in charge of the growing fledgling church in Crete. And Paul is trying to encourage Titus in his work, but also to lay down standards for all to follow in Crete. And so this morning, at first glance, it appears that I have a very simple task in front of me. I have to, in church, in a sermon, convince you of the importance of teaching in the church. You who are already here, in church, willing to listen to a sermon. But don't just take the first glance at this text. Because it is about the importance of teaching in the church. But it is about the importance of teaching for the effect it will have on your life and mine. You see, the church is unlike any other classroom. When you go and take a chemistry class, you expect to learn chemistry, to learn facts about chemicals, and the periodic table, and various 
pieces of information so that you can then repeat them back. The same thing is true with math. The same thing is true with history, with so much of what we learn. Isn't that right, kids? Many of you have, whether you are schooled at home or in a school, you have a list of all of the things that you are supposed to know this week. Many of you have, I've seen them, you have little check boxes to put next to them for papers that you fill out, verses or words that you memorize. But you see, teaching in the church, Paul says, is much more than that. It's much more than about learning things and becoming full of more information. Because you see, teaching in the church, Paul tells Titus, is to be done so that people's lives are transformed. What they learn does not stay in the mind. It begins in the mind. Don't let anyone kid you otherwise. But it must carry forth throughout all of our being. And so what we are going to look at this morning are three specific arenas of transformation in teaching. We're going to look at transforming men. And then we will look at transforming women. And then finally, we will look at transforming the younger, both men and women. And I trust that when we are done, you, like I have been as I have studied it, will be a little bit uncomfortable. Some of Paul's points will hit a little too close to home. But that is the purpose and power of God's Word. It is to change us in who we are transforming the men, the women, and the young people of not only our church, but of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, we see that this is Paul's mission from the very first words that he uses. He says in the beginning of chapter 2, But as for you... Now, Paul is speaking to Titus, and again, we are blessed by the fact that we are looking at this text consecutively throughout this book. So, Titus, this is going to happen to you, and it's going to be different than what I was just talking about. Now, you may recall that last week we looked, as your eyes should go up a couple of verses, we looked at verses 10 through 16 at those who were false teachers, people who were windbags, empty talkers, People who are only concerned about their own benefits and blessings. Only concerned about what they could get out of it, whether it was control or money. And Paul says to Titus, now that's not for you. As for you, Titus, you are to teach what accords with sound doctrine. And he says this in a very interesting way. The word here for teach is not the ordinary word that is used in the New Testament for teach. It can mean that, but it has a bit of flavor to go along with it. It's actually the word that is used for talking. Not necessarily public speaking or declaiming, but simply talking. It's a word that you would use if you said, I was talking with my neighbor the other day over the fence. As I was talking with my kids yesterday afternoon, it's something that we do on a continual basis. It is part and parcel of our lives. It is information that is portrayed and given in both a formal and informal manner. 
And contrary to the false teachers who were all concerned about their own authority and being in charge, Paul says, you need to be, Titus, teaching and speaking all the time. Because you see, teaching is that important. It is the main function of what you are to do. Now, it would be interesting. Paul would not make a very good manual for a 21st century church plant. You see all the emphasis on speaking, teaching, exhorting, equipping. There's nothing in here about how to make coffee that tastes like Starbucks. There's nothing in here about the lighting or the ambiance of the church. There's nothing in here about the mood, whether it's the music or the smells of the church. You know that there are actually churches today that don't even have teaching? They just get together and watch a movie or listen to music or try to spiritually watch candles. But you see, Paul will have none of this. Paul says the main thrust of what we are to do is to teach. It is the most important thing in the church, and it is to be continual. It is to be part and parcel of who we are. But Paul is also not setting up a university. You could walk into other churches, and they may as well be a community college or a university. Everyone sits down dutifully with pen and paper, And the lead speaker, whether he call himself a preacher or a lecturer, will begin to then spout off information, sometimes in what I like to call the modern debate format. You know, no one debates like Lincoln Douglas anymore. The way the debate is done today is young people practice how quickly they can speak because they have to get in a certain number of facts to score points. And sometimes we think that that's what church should be. You need to learn as much as possible, as quickly as possible. Here, let me turn on this fire hose. Go ahead and take a drink. But that's not what Paul is saying. He says you are to teach what accords with sound doctrine. What is in accordance with what portrays and gives sound doctrine. Now, we have seen this word before, sound. And our first glance is to think about doctrine that is right and correct. And that's part of what Paul is getting at here. Obviously, he does not want Titus to teach false doctrine or things that are lies or wrong. But this word sound here is once again that word that we get hygiene from. It doesn't just mean right, it means healthy, life-producing, life-giving, life-sustaining doctrine. Titus, you are to teach things that transform people, that make them better Christians, that make them closer in their walk to the Lord, that encourage them to live the life that God has laid out for them in His Word. It's not just about what you know. In reality, Christianity is about who you know. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you eager to obey Him because of who He is? So this is what Paul, how he lays out the the context for us, that what we are to do is to teach with what accords with sound doctrine. And he begins then by addressing the men. He begins with older men. Now, that's a good many of us here. 
because the old here would be men in their 30s and up. So don't think I haven't retired yet, so I don't need to be these things. We're talking about men who are mature, who already have families. That includes toddlers. Men who should be mature in the faith because they are mature naturally. And so he begins by saying, older men are to be after this fashion. Sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in the faith, in love, and in steadfastness. And he begins very interestingly with this transformational truth by giving an imperative. We see it here in the English. It's even stronger in the Greek. He says, you, older men. Now look up from your Bibles, older men. Look at me. You are to be sober-minded. You are to be dignified. You are to be self-controlled. Now, if you're like me, you look at that and you say, well, that's well and good, but how do you tell me that I have to be something? And especially if you're a man. A man doesn't mind being told something, but he needs to be told what? What to do. Men don't like to talk about what to be. Isn't that women's work? Women want to talk about things and talk about relationships and talk about who we are and where we're going. And men say, where is the thing that needs fixing? Where is the tool to fix it? What time can I fix it? Right? But you see, Paul doesn't say that. Paul commands you to be a certain way. And so you say to yourself, how do I do that? I don't just conjure up dignified. I was the class clown in high school. How do I do dignified? Tell me. But you see, you have to remember here, Paul is speaking to Titus who is to be teaching where? In the church. He is speaking to people whose lives have already been transformed by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. He is telling you men to be what you already are in Christ. Christ is not a goofball. Christ is not lazy. Christ is not flippant. And if you are in Christ, then you are none of those things. You may have the dragging, clawing remnants of those things in you, but as we move on following Christ, we shed those things aside, and that's what Paul is doing. He is giving you a command to do this. And he's doing it for a specific reason. There is a reason, and it is not just monetarily, that we are not having this worship service with each one of you sitting in front of your computer with a webcam shooting me and you watching and listening. It's because church is not about the individual. The body of Christ is, here's a shocking statement, a body. It is a group of people who are gathered together. And so as we teach and as we learn, we do not do this in a vacuum. We do not do this individually. There are others who watch us. There are others who follow us. There are others who are listening to us. And so the call here to older men to be these ways, to have these character traits, is because it affects the health of the whole body. 
It is not just about whether you have your best life today. It is about whether you are encouraging the body of Jesus Christ. Now, how do we do that as older men? We do it first by being sober-minded. You recall that I said that of the traits, the character traits of elders, every single one except ability to teach is required of every Christian. Here's a reminder. You see, elders are to be sober-minded. So are men. So you may say to yourself, well, I don't think I'll ever be an elder because you'd have to drag me kicking and screaming to teach somebody. So I'm off the hook. Paul says you still need to be sober-minded. You still need to be someone that is known for being thoughtful, prudent. That doesn't mean that you are a theologian. It does mean that you are steeped in the knowledge of God's Word. You think about what God desires any time you take an action before you advise someone else. You see, men, as roles, as the role of leadership falls upon you in your family, in your workplace, in the church at large, you must be sober-minded because it will affect others. The second thing that men are called to be is to be dignified. This is a demeanor. This is a bearing. This does not mean uptight and stuffy. But it does mean someone who is respectable. Someone whom others look to and say, I want to be like that. I really like the way he handles himself. I really like the grace that he has in his speech. I really like the way he takes care of his wife. I like the way he listens to his children. You see, all men in the church are to be models in this sense. They are to be sober-minded and they are to be dignified. Lastly, Paul says that they are to be self-controlled. This is another thing about who they are and the character that is built up in them. Self-controlled means that you are not controlled by passions or things outside of yourself. We are to be controlled by God's Word, and that doesn't mean that we're not passionate about things or passionate about events or passionate about activities, but what it does mean is we have all of those things under our control. We're not under the control of others. So it's okay, for example to be passionate about even something like golf. But when your wife is home crying on Saturday morning, and you think, well, I'll get to her too, because I don't want to miss my tea time, then there's a problem. Then golf controls you. Or work. Or a hobby. You see, the man is to be one who is self-controlled, who is guided by God's Word, and who seeks the benefit of others. So this is the character that is built up in a man. But a man is also to cultivate godliness in his life. He is to be a certain way that he might act a certain way. And we see this in this second triad that Paul lays out. He is to be sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. This is a familiar series of three. The word here for steadfastness could also be translated hope. Faith, love, 
hope. The man of God is to be sound, is to be healthy, is to have such a character that it results in showing that he is a man gripped by faith, love, and hope. He is to be a man who is not ashamed to say that he trusts in the Lord for all things. He is a man who is not ashamed to pray before important decisions, to seek the counsel of others, both men and women, especially his wife. A man who desires to hear and know what his children are about. He is a man who is sound in love in these kind of relationships, who gives of himself and who seeks to persevere in the faith, to show his hope to others, to encourage others. What better encouragement to a young couple who are frazzled with feedings and changings and things that break around their house that is small and inexpensive than to see someone who has journeyed through those things and who points them on to the hope in Christ. And says, things will get better, not just because you'll get smarter, but because you're following the Lord. This is what older men are to be like. But we're also talking about women here. The older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior. Now, again, so you don't exclude yourself from this body, and I'll also make the ladies feel a little bit better, if the older men are in their 30s, the older women are in their 20s. Because in Paul's world, by the time you were 25, you probably had three or four or five kids. And you'd probably been married about a decade or more. Okay? So this is something that is applicable about the character of someone who has lived a while. Now, I don't expect you to be 22 and have been married for eight years. But I do expect you, if you're 22, to have lived 22 years and to have had that amount of time to study the Scripture and to have had relationship with your parents and your friends and others. When you're 18, you don't need to act like you're 11. There should be a level of maturity about you, even if you don't have a job, even if you don't have a family yet. There's a level of maturity. And the older women are also to be marked by their character and their godliness of action, but their godliness is seen in being communicated to other women. But let's begin then by looking at the character they have, the character that is built. The older women are to be likewise, so in the same way, with the same imperative, with the same ability that it is seen before the whole church, they are to be reverent. Now, what does this mean? This does not mean that you do your best impression of looking like a 17th century lady of the court with long flowing gown and hands perfectly folded with lips pursed, nodding very gravely. That's not what that means. What it means to be reverent is it's a reminder to older women that other people are watching you. Younger women who want to be like you. Younger men who want to find a wife that is like you. Being reverent means you know you are being watched by others and you 
One phrase to help us think about it is this. To be reverent, especially to be reverent in behavior, is to carry a holy demeanor in daily life. Not on Sunday life. Not on vacation life. Not on Christmas life. In daily life. It's to be godly in daily life. And that tells us two things. We can't check, ladies, our reverence and our godliness at the door at certain times. But then secondly, we must make allowance for daily things. If we are honest with ourselves, daily life is messy, isn't it? Some days are just horrible. You're just glad you made it through. But the godly older woman still retains that reverent demeanor, that godly inner quality, that holiness of self, of character and strength that gets you through those miserable, rotten days. To be reverent. The second thing that ladies are told to do and to be are not slanderers. Now, let me meddle a bit. I'll move beyond preaching to meddling. This does not mean do not take out full-page ads in the New York Times slandering someone. It doesn't even mean don't go and talk somebody down all over the neighborhood. Really, a good homespun way for you to think about this is Paul is saying, do not be a gossip. And if I can be so bold, there's a reason why Paul directs that to the ladies and not primarily to the men. Men have their own grab bag of issues. But generally speaking, you've got to twist a man's arm to get four words out of him. There are some men who are gossips. The exception will prove the rule. But generally speaking, it is the ladies that are given to this because they want to talk about relationships and growth and who people are and what is happening. And the temptation comes. And it comes in the church. Gossip comes with a preamble in the church. I think we ought to pray for Susie. Oh, because her kids are a nightmare. She can't raise them at all. We need to pray for her. Oh, we need to pray for Frank. We need to pray for him because he is a lazy deadbeat. And he needs to keep a job. That's what happens in the church. It's a temptation. Older women, you need to resist that temptation because others are watching you. When you hold that prayer meeting, my guess is there are more than a couple of minors playing in another room or sitting around taking a snack or just in the house. What you're doing is teaching others to gossip. Paul says don't do it. It's not what Christians do. There is a great temptation here. The third thing that he says to the older women is something that I think would strike us as very odd. The women are not to be slaves to much wine. Now immediately we think, well, if we took statistics from scientific journals, wouldn't we find that more men are alcoholics than women? Why is Paul saying that women are drunks? I don't think he's just quite saying that you need to not be a drunk. What he's saying is you should not be a slave or addicted to things. And he puts this in a very interesting context. 
He tells the women not to be slaves to wine because in the ancient world it would be the women who were in charge of the household and the household goods. They would know how much bread is in the house. They would know how much food is in the house. They would know how much drink is in the house. Is it any different in your home? Is your home any different than mine? Well, I don't even bother to look for things anymore because it takes me too long. I say to my wife, I just did it this week. Do we have any more hot sauce? She says, I don't think so. I said, well, how do you know? She said, well, it would be on this shelf over here. Let's go look. I said, okay, let's go look. Sure enough, she was right. We didn't have any more hot sauce. It's the ladies who are in charge of the house, and that can become something that consumes you. Whether it's partaking of too much of a substance, that substance could be drink, That substance could be food. That substance could even be sleep. Because there is a sense in which most women are entrepreneurs. They have all of the challenges of an entrepreneur. Being your own boss gives you the hardest boss you've ever had in your life, right? But it also means there's no one there to tell you what to do every five minutes. And that's a temptation for women. And God says, through Paul, You need to run your house in a fashion that is respectful and that will show others the glory of that. But it's not, again, just about who you are. It's secondly about communicating that godliness to others. Because Paul says you are to be these sorts of women and they are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husband and children. So, Older women are not just to be a certain way, they are to impart that to others in their life and in their teaching. They need to be able to teach godliness. You see, I think sometimes we we miss that as we look at 1 Timothy 2 and we see that women are not to be formal teachers in the church over men. But that doesn't mean that women should not cultivate teaching gifts. Even those of you who are not lecturers, right? Right? Think about the way perhaps you learned how to cook. Some of you, ladies, learn to cook from your mothers by them getting out a cookbook and pulling out all of the various measuring implements and them showing you with near scientific precision how you were to cook, almost like if you took a cooking class at college. Others of you learn to cook by them grabbing bottles and shaking Dumping, tasting, right? Both of you learn to cook. It's just different methods of instruction. And you need to figure out which type of instructor you are. But you must be an instructor. That's what Paul says. It's not an option. You must pass on this godliness to others. It is not enough for you to be godly. Women, you must pass that on to the next generation. And that happens whether you have children, whether you have your own girls or not. There are plenty of young women here in this body and in your community that need instruction in godliness. So you must be a model for this. There is an immediate goal for this, and that is to train other younger women to be ready for life. But there's also a very long-term goal as well. 
there is building a legacy. There is building a legacy of faith. How do you want people to speak of your name 50 years from now? What do you want people to think about this church 75 years from now? Do you want it to be known as a place where the Bible was upheld? Where people were cared for? Where kindness was shown? Or do you want it to be forgotten? You see, we are called to build a legacy of faith based on who we are in Christ. Both older men and older women. How does that legacy show up? That legacy shows up in our third heading here this morning. Because we are not only to teach so as to transform older men than to transform older women, but we are also to transform the younger. And Paul deals with this more from the perspective of the woman than the man. He kind of tacks the man on at the end, you'll see here. In verse 6, he says, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And this word likewise here encompasses what he has said previously in a similar manner. So when we talk about how women are to love their husbands and children, likewise young men are to love their wives and children. So it encompasses that next generation of younger believers. And it comes up in two ways. The first is in an unnatural growth in younger people. And the second is in the specific challenges that they meet. Now what do I mean by unnatural growth? You will see here what Paul lays out for the younger women is really a series of pairs. The first thing that they are to do is to love their husbands and children. The second thing that they are to do is to be self-controlled and pure. The third thing they are to do is to work at home and to be kind. And then lastly, they are to be submissive to their own husbands. I want to look first at this second set of pairs, to be self-controlled and pure. And I think what Paul is getting at here is you are to teach younger people, younger women, to be wise and to be holy. Now, if I think about that, let me put that in in stark, illustrative terms so you get the impact. I want you this afternoon to go home and instruct your 12-year-olds to be wise. And you're sitting there thinking to yourself, I'm happy if they don't stick gum in their hair. What do you mean, be wise? I want you to teach them to be holy. I'd settle for they don't hit the siblings. But do you see this? It's not something that comes naturally to younger people. We don't look at a young person and think, ah, there's a wise person. But in Christ, we should. Because there are young people today, there are young people in our midst that are decades above people out there in the world in wisdom. And I don't mean that theoretically. I have names in my mind. No, I'm not going to share them with you. 
but it's because when you have the, the fount of all wisdom in God's Word, and when you commit yourself to studying God's Word, and when others cultivate God's Word in you, you will be unnaturally wise. And when you are unnaturally wise as a young person, you become something else. You become a leader. You become a leader in your church. You become a leader at your workplace. You become a leader in your community. And this is how Christians change the world. When people don't know what to do about marital problems, they find the Christian on the block. Even if it's someone that they would never talk to otherwise. When people want child-rearing advice, they find the Christian in the cubicle in their workplace. And so as we cultivate this, we cultivate wisdom. And this must begin with the young people. Don't waste time. Now that doesn't mean you have to be all serious and humdrum all the time. That's not what I mean. But what I mean is you need to be cultivating a love for God's Word. You also need to be cultivating holiness. There is a great and incredible lie in the world today, and it has been going on for generations. It says that young people need to go out and sow their wild oats before they'll settle down. What does that mean? Oh, well, you know, he's young, he's flighty, he's had four or five jobs in a year. He's just got to get it out of his system. No. You work hard, and you be constant. You don't work and not care and get fired. Oh, you know, he can't keep, he gets $5 and it burns a hole in his pocket. It goes through him all the time. You know, he'll have to learn. No. You learn how to be wise stewards of God's money. Now, you need to cultivate these sorts of things, and especially in the realm of moral purity. You need to be cultivating, especially now, young people, moral purity. And I don't just mean for the singles. I mean also for the young marrieds who are building families. This is something that Paul says is critical and important. You are to be pure. But there are also specific challenges that come here because of your stage of life. So Paul says they are to be young women who love their husbands and children. And he actually begins this series of phrases here. He says that relationships in the home are the starting point for growth in godliness. Now, what does this tell us about love? If we were to listen to Hollywood or to the popular culture, who would we say are more in love? The couple that's been married for 40 years and who may even occupy separate rooms because he snores at night. Or the couple that is a newlywed and are just so much in love. <laughs> who knows more about love? Well, you see what Paul says. Paul says it's the mature people that know about love. And that means that love is not about passion. It's not just about feelings. It's not about being dreamy. Love is about a commitment. Love is about relationships. Love is about self-sacrifice. Love is about learning and knowing and being and doing. It's something that can be learned, something that can be trained in someone else. We ought to understand that. 
We ought to expect every single one of us here today who is married to grow in our love for our spouse. We ought to be training ourselves to grow in love for our spouse and our children. That's what Paul says. And it's a specific challenge to someone that this is new to. The young women are also called to be busy and diligent at home. In their own domain, they are to be godly in their actions. Now, I want you to see very briefly how Paul puts this together. The wife is to be working at home. Some translations will say busy in the home. Now, lest you get the wrong impression, for some of you, you get that impression and you think of a female drill sergeant. Right? All the kids are dressed perfectly. The home is in shape. Dinner's on the table, 5.15. Bang. Table set perfectly. Right? But Paul puts right alongside this busyness, he says you're to be kind, gentle. So this is something that we need to cultivate in ourselves, not just to get the job done right, but to be gracious in doing it. And he follows up on this in talking about how we are to treat others We're to be kind and helpful to others. We are to be right in our proper relationship with others. For a young woman here, that means to be submissive to her own husband. It doesn't say to every man who walks down the street. It says to her own husband. And why is all of this? Paul says, we are all to be this way. And we are to train others so that we might not see the word of God reviled. The Greek word there is actually blasphemed. Why? Because what does Christianity do? What does the change that Christ brought about do? What does the Bible do? If we are not adorning the gospel with our behavior, if we are not showing that God's word has real power to change real people in real ways, we're a failure. It doesn't help that you can spout out every Bible verse you can do when no one will listen because you're unkind, you're unsubmissive, you're flighty, you're not good-natured, you're lazy. It doesn't help. Paul says, what we learn in the truth should affect who we are. And that helps us to pass on the chain of the truth that affects who people are. That then goes on and on and on and on. That's what we're called to do, people. You and me, daily, every day, building the kingdom of God, one person, one family, one relationship at a time. All for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you have taught us so clearly of the duty that you require of us and that you have given us your spirit that we might be equipped, that we might be able to pursue godliness. Lord, we ask that you would take mercy upon us Show us, encourage us, and equip us to be transformed by the power of your almighty word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.